Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's November 29th, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, and I am joined by Michael Warren and John McCormick of the Weekly Standard on another one of these absolutely crazy days. I was uh, I was planning on talking about uh, the incredible durability of Nancy Pelosi, who I'm I'm convinced is is like I don't want to say something offensive, but you know, after nuclear winter, the things that will still be alive that will survive anything. Um, we also uh, want to talk about uh, the possibility of a shutdown, government shutdown. If the president's looking for something to distract from today's news, who knows what could possibly happen? But okay, guys, let's talk about this. It does feel. Like the Mueller investigation has ratcheted up its intensity by a factor of two or three, whether it's because of the Whitaker appointment as acting attorney general or the collapse of the Manafort deal. Um, We really seem to be moving very, very rapidly. Uh, Yesterday, the president uh, suggesting that he was uh, still considering the possibility of pardoning Paul Manafort, who we now find out was apparently – Still leaking or you know sharing information with Trump, uh, despite the fact that he was supposedly a cooperating witness with the special counsel. Not good for Paul Manafort or for his lawyers. And then this morning, the story, Michael. I know that you have the some of the you've been watching this closely. You have Michael Cohen, longtime personal attorney for the president, uh, making a surprise appearance in federal court to plead guilty to lying to Congress about a business deal involving the possibility of a Trump Tower in Moscow. So let's put this on the scale. I've, I'm noticing that a lot of, uh, a lot of comment, uh, commentators are saying this is, a, this is a huge development. This is a big deal, but we've been here before. How big a deal is this? Well, just because it's a big deal doesn't mean it's the end of of everything. This could just be one more big deal to throw on the pile of big deals. Um, but I do think it, it is a it reveals um, to us just again, once again, how much uh, Mueller knows, how much Mueller is um, uh, is really gaming this, all of this out, and just. Um, how much it seems to be closing in. Now, I don't think that there. this is what happened, and I can get into it a little bit, Charlie. What happened is is proof positive of uh, finally Mueller has got Trump or has got the Trump campaign on collusion. But it does feel a bit like things are, are, are closing in a little bit and more importantly getting, once again, out of the president's control. Um, he's got his former lawyer now admitting to lying uh, before Congress and entering a plea deal with Robert Mueller. Now, r- let remember that Cohen's involvement uh, in all these sort of legal troubles, which sort of stemmed from the Stormy Daniels uh, payoff, um, this was all being dealt with in the Southern District of New York. It was referred mm-hmm. to the Southern District of New York by the special counsel, something that they found and referred it. So uh, Cohen's actually not been involved at all with Mueller's investigation, uh, at least publicly, at least what we've been able to see. Until today, and now mm-hmm. with this with this plea deal, with his admitting to have lying before Congress, he's got this deal with Mueller's investigation. Now he's sort of in in Mueller's tentacles, so to speak. And I, I think, and I go into the criminal information a bit, but I think this is a, a big deal uh, because it's got it's it, it, Mueller has Cohen um, right where he may want him. 
Yeah, let's just sort of try to unpack the, the the big deal aspects of this. The the first one is what you just obviously mentioned. Secondly, I think it's interesting that the special prosecutor is now charging people uh, for lying to Congress. Obviously, sending up the flag that did you know what I'm. It's not just lying to the FBI or lying to me. If you lie in um, in your testimony to Congress, that obviously has got to send chills uh, up the up the up the back of a lot of people who've been through that process. And number three, and David French tweeted about this this morning, uh, he wrote, uh, let's just be clear, there is now evidence that Trump was pursuing a substantial personal business relationship with our chief geopolitical foe long after he wrapped up the GOP nomination, regardless of the legality of his actions. This is not acceptable. So it also goes to Trump's personal business and the fact that he was, in fact, having talks directly or indirectly with the Kremlin. Now, the president is saying, look, I was a businessman. Everybody knew I was a businessman. I, you know, I just because I was running for president didn't mean I stopped doing business, right? Um, and in fact, this deal never came through. So even if this is all true, it's no big deal. Thoughts? Charlie, you just don't get nationalism, why it's in the national interest <laughs> of America, American first foreign policy to have one presidential candidate, uh, you know, be personally compromised with a business relationship with our chief <laughs> geopolitical foe. He was advancing the national interest and globalists like you don't get it, Charlie. And I would I would just ask, when are you going to wake up? Huh? <laughs> You know, Sorry, good. I know. Yeah, sarcasm on on podcasts. I hope people get this. You know, this is this is this is the thing I'm always you're always afraid of. Should like, we have like a sound effect for sarcasm, like at the beginning and end of the sarcastic statement, just to there, uh, there send should it be, home? you know, just a, a reader reader alert, just so you know, listener alert. Yeah, this is the um, and and to a certain extent, there's. This is the part of this story that that I've been, always been the most interested in. I, I I'm agnostic on whether or not Donald Trump is engaged in any sort of collusion or or conspiracy. I just I just don't know. But you always thought, well, what is the backstory? What is with the money? If you follow the money, if you follow the deals, you know the whole question of money laundering and everything. We're we're a long way away from all of that. But this seems to also suggest that that door is being opened because, uh, you know, you, you we now have Michael Cohen directly cooperating. Also, you know, I've even forgotten his name. Remember the the, the bookkeeper at uh, the Trump uh, Trump organization who at one point was uh, was also uh, cooperating at some point. That's right. He opened the, up the books uh, at, yeah. at, at the Trump organization. I mean, I, I agree with you, Charlie, that that that's that seems to be now where we're going. And now this is supposedly reason to think, aha, now the whole Russia collusion thing, collusion thing, that was this was just a, a smokescreen, an ability to get at Trump and get at his business dealings because he was such a great businessman and, and, and his political enemies just want to exploit this. But uh, I think at, at the heart of all of this is a question of um, – of truthfulness or lack thereof. Let's go to the criminal information that the special counsel released this morning, which which I will right now. Um, the so the, the, this primary issue of what Cohen lied about was that uh, that the uh, uh, discussion within the Trump organization that he was an employee at, that he was chief counsel at. Um, about pursuing this project in Moscow for which they would have needed the Russian government's uh, okay on because of, uh, of the way the Russian law works uh, on this. Uh, that that all ended before the Iowa caucuses, before the uh, Republican primary, the first primary, which would have been in New Hampshire a week later uh, in 2016. That all discussion of that stopped. Um, and uh, this is what 
uh, Cohen testified to in front of both the Senate and the House Intelligence Committees. Uh, this was back in 2017. Um, uh, uh, so this was like a September, August, September, um, and October uh, of 2017. So what what the what the Mueller investigation has has determined and what they have agreed upon with Cohen's uh, attorneys and Cohen himself is that. Uh, Cohen was lying about that, that in fact, there is evidence, there are emails, there are phone calls that's, that demonstrate that Cohen was continuing to pursue this project uh, into May and even into June of 2016, having conversations, trying to even discuss travel for the then presidential candidate and the presumptive nominee for the Republican Party, uh, Donald Trump, who's identified in this as, um, as person one or individual one. Um, but it's, it's obviously Trump. Um, now this is what this is what I think is so important, and this is what is so damning uh, in this. Um, uh, it, it is a statement about Cohen's agreement that he was lying when he said this, and and why he was lying. And I just want to read it out loud because um, I think it's it, it tells you everything. Um, this is quoting from the statement uh, from the special counsel's office. In truth and in fact, and as Cohen well knew, Cohen's representations about the Moscow project he made uh, to the Senate and House Intelligence Committees were false and misleading. Cohen made the false statements to, one, minimize the links between the Moscow project and individual one, and two, give the false impression that the Moscow project ended before, uh, quote, the Iowa caucus and the first very first primary, in hopes of limiting the ongoing Russia investigations. So here we have uh, an agreement by which Cohen is saying, I lied about this in order to shield Donald Trump in 2017, in the midst of these Russian investigations, in order to shield him and uh, to limit the investigations. That, to me, um, if this ends up being true, if this really ends up being uh, what the truth is, is so damning and has to be what's worrying Donald Trump so much. Well, what this is interesting. I don't know. Did either of you guys watch Jerome Corsi on television last night? I got to say, I was watching other things besides okay. Jerome and By the way, great life choice. But <laughs> this, I keep coming back to this question, that if there's nothing to see, if there's nothing wrong here, why are so many people willing to lie about it? Why were there so many meetings? Why so many lies? Why so many cover stories? Why would people put themselves in such legal jeopardy if there is nothing wrong about what happened? Can, and, I, can I offer yeah. a response to that, actually? Please. Um yeah. Here's one reason. Uh, it could be, and we saw this, um, it was often the case with the Clintons as well, um, is that if you're so used to lying, that lying becomes sort of pathological. Lying becomes something that you're just used to doing, the, the, that, that, that um, you could argue that, there's a, that, that, there, that they could possibly be in a position where it's just the default uh, action that you take. When, when people start asking questions, you lie about it. Now, that's not very – that's not that, – that, that doesn't um, redeem anybody here. Um, but I, I think everybody uh, who's sort of supporting Trump and, and, and uh, opposing the Mueller investigation keeps saying, was, well, you don't have proof that there was any collusion. I think every step of the way, we, as we've seen that, that people in Trump's orbit have lied or misrepresented things, that alone uh, warrants further investigation. And I think that this is another example of that. Well, and it's well, certainly, you know, yeah, it, it, go ahead, John. It's possible. I mean, it, and I'm not saying this is the case, but it's possible that people do lie to cover up the appearance of wrongdoing or immoral behavior, just right. like 
Bill Clinton, just like, uh, you know, the Stormy Daniels payoff. And this could be a part of that. I mean, the, the most telling line from, from Trump's comments this morning was him saying things like, uh, what is it? Uh, you know, it w- there would have been nothing wrong if I did do it of the Moscow project yeah. and saying there was a good chance that I wouldn't have won, in which case I would have gotten back into business. And why would I lose lots of opportunities? So, you know, obviously the, the argument could be that this was not necessarily um, anything illegal, but that, you know, they were covering up the uh, actual or the appearance of impropriety uh, to put the best uh, case, the best case spin on it from their perspective. Yeah. Let me go. Let me go back to Michael's point about the chronic lying, because you and, and I think I made this point yesterday, though, it's, you know, between Paul Manafort, uh, Michael Cohen, Jerome Corsi, uh, Roger Stone, you, you, you have some of the you have people who are pathological liars, who are professional liars, who are professional grifters who um, are, are men almost without without any scruple whatsoever. And it, it certainly says something about the swamp they were all swimming in, that they all, the, the Donald Trump surrounded himself with people like this. I mean, it's sort of a side story. Uh, the Daily Beast has a fantastic story about how Roger Stone and uh, Jerome Corsi kept peddling that story about Seth Rich, the, the, the uh, young DNC staffer who was murdered, that he might have been the source of, of, of the leak emails. They were peddling that even after they knew that it was not. Not true. So it's not just that you're lying. You have some of the, and I'm sorry to use this phrase, worst people in the world <laughs> who who are all players in all of this. So so who knows when you're sitting around a room what the moral uh, tone is. I thought it was interesting that the president, uh, one of the things he said about Michael Cohen, that Michael Cohen is weak. He's weak. It's like, so he, he immediately gets in touch with his inner sort of mob boss because strong people don't cooperate, right? They don't flip. They don't rat. And the cover, the the headline in the Drudge Report right now is Rat Sings, <laughs> exclamation point. It's like we're all living in the Sopranos now. Um, so we're going to see what happens with all of this. But, of course, uh, within the last uh, hour or so, the president uh, then surprisingly announced that he was not going to be meeting with Vladimir Putin. And this was like almost you know immediately after saying this would be a good time to meet with uh, Vladimir Putin. Now, he's saying it's because um, you know of, of unhappiness with what's going on between Russia and Ukraine – but you, you know, obviously have to wonder whether or not uh, somebody said, "Look, the optics of you meeting with Putin today or tomorrow would be very bad, considering what's going on." So we can only speculate about that. Anybody want to speculate about that? He's never had a good meeting with the Russians, whether it was in the no. Oval Office uh, with who was it? Was it Kislyak and, uh, uh, and the uh, Foreign uh, Minister? Yeah, was that, uh, you know, I mean, Helsinki. It's never gone so, well. So um, maybe somebody told him this wasn't going to. I, I have this image of like one after another senior White House officials like just like walking into the Oval Office and just like pleading with him, you know, please do not do this. This is, you know, for whether it's the Ukraine uh, 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 stuff or this Mueller stuff, um, it, there could be no worse uh, photo op. And maybe that's the, the, the argument they used. And because this is a president who is uh, very aware of uh, what looks good and what doesn't look good on TV. He's he's very good at that, and that's why I want to get move on to the question of whether we might actually be looking at a shutdown. Because if you're a president looking for a distraction, I want to get to that in a moment. But today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by, and this seems so timely, but it always seems timely, is brought to you by Calm, the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was even named Apple's 2017 app of the year. Look, if you ever feel stressed or anxious and you're looking for a coping tool, um, this thing is it is easy to download. It gives you all the tools you need to live a happier, healthier, more mindful life. Just five minutes of Calm can change your whole day. Look, I know you're skeptical about this. I 
was skeptical about this. I rolled my eyes when I first heard about this. I downloaded it. I was amazed at the quality and the skill that they put into it. And it does not require a great deal of time. But this is a very high end. Um, when, when, when you're listening to uh, you know, well-known actors reading the, some of these stories or reading some of the meditations, look, uh, we all live in a very, very stressful time. And today, you can get 25% off of a Calm premium subscription if you head to calm.com slash standard. This includes hundreds of hours of premium programming, guided meditations on anxiety, stress, focus, relationships, including this new meditation each day called the Daily Calm. So just try it. Sleep stories are like bedtime stories for grown-ups. So for a limited time, Daily Standard listeners can get 25% off of a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash standard. It includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. Get started today at calm.com slash standard. That is calm.com slash Standard. Uh, okay, I, uh, before we move on, uh, gentlemen, um, the, uh, the the Senate is apparently uh, not moving ahead on some of the judicial nominations um, because Jeff Flake has said that he is not going to be voting to advance any of them because Mitch McConnell is refusing a vote on a, a Mueller protection bill. Um, also, you have uh, this morning Paul Ryan talking to the uh, folks of the Washington Post saying that he was absolutely not worried at all about the Mueller investigation, saw no reason to take any action whatsoever. How – what is the basis of their confidence that they don't need to do anything? I mean, I mean, do they not read the president's tweets? Are they are they not looking at Matthew Whitaker? John, do you have any sense of what the basis of their their apparent confidence that nothing's going to happen to this investigation? I think that's pretty obviously their uh, you know political self interest and not wanting to get a fight with the president. Uh, you know, the the good argument uh, in favor of not doing anything is the Mike Lee Ben Sass argument, and that these Mueller right. protection bills are actually unconstitutional. They're creating an unconstitutional fourth branch of government, as Scalia. Leah laid out in, uh, what was it, Morrison? Yeah. I forget. Uh, you know, and, and the whole reason why we have uh, the Special Counsel Act the way it does. I wrote a piece uh, a few, I guess, in the spring asking whether or not if if Trump fires Mueller, could Congress, sim- and this was Sasson, make this argument explicitly, but he said that he would make sure, although he opposed the Mueller protection bill, he would make sure that Congress carries out its uh, investigation. But it's not clear it's so easy just to pick up where Mueller left off. I mean, I, I asked around a couple of legal scholars, people on Capitol Hill, could Congress literally just hire Mueller and everybody else? Could you get all the records? And that is not at all clear that whether whether you have to start from scratch um, in terms of you know a congressional oversight and congressional investigation, or whether that the only recourse at that point uh, to Mueller getting fired is impeachment and uh, potential conviction. And that's what it seems like to me. Um, the The Department of Justice could, I mean, they could squ- uh, you know quash all of this information, right? I mean, Matthew Whitaker, in theory, has the power to say, "No, I'm going to seal all of this. There's no reports. Every, everything is uh, is locked down." So that, you know, within the, the, the you know, executive branch, you essentially have obstructed justice. You have covered all of this up. And, and I really do respect Ben Sass and, and, and Mike Lee's argument here. I mean, it is not without merit. On the other hand, uh, if you are, in fact, concerned about the constitutional uh, constitutionalism and constitutional norms, what might be about to happen strikes me as a much graver danger to uh, the, the rule of law. Than, uh, than this particular uh, piece of legislation. Um, uh, before we get uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, on track to be the speaker, she is 78 years old, one of the most divisive, unpopular figures in American politics. And yet, 
and and I have been you know quite critical of her. Obviously, in fact, I was on a, a show and I said, uh, you, you know, Democrats uh, re-electing her is like the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over and over again, and expecting a different result. But the reality is, is that she's obviously a pretty skilled vote counter and leader. And I think the tell, and tell me if you disagree, the tell that she was, that despite all of the, you know, hand-wringing and everything, that she was going to be re-elected speaker, is that the Democrats don't have anybody else. There, there was nobody else as a plausible candidate. And Nancy Pelosi becomes uh, really one of the ultimate survivors, at least on the Democratic side. Yeah, I think some of this, Charlie, is due to luck. Um, the, the, the simple fact that there was nobody, nobody obvious um, uh, or nobody willing to rise uh, to the occasion and, and really challenge her. I do think... There was a moment, uh, basically uh, the, the the first two weeks after the election, uh, where Pelosi was in trouble of not getting enough votes, um, and uh, through the that that uh, intervention of luck, but also I think um, her steeliness. You know, she was um, she did not reveal this at all. She made it uh, her, uh, and and made it. Uh, believed that uh, she was uh, solid in her support. Um, I don't think that was always the case, um, but in a weird way, the, um, uh, the, the image projecting the image of inevitability, uh, ultimately made her inevitable to, to win. And she still does need the 218 on yeah. the floor, and that's not 100% certain that's going to happen right now, is it? Or what do you, what is, what's Probably, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, it seems like everyone's just sort of bluffing and trying to right. get as much as they can, and they want some new leadership leadership changes. I mean, I think she's been lucky in the fact that the rest of the leadership, Clyburn and Hoyer, you know, there's no obvious successor. They're both old and stale and part and, of the and, same leadership team as, as she was. But. And from the last time that Democrats were in, in charge, um, the sort of the the younger people who were uh, leadership hungry, um, a lot of them have left the House. I mean, Chris Van Hollen's the most obvious one, uh, who's now a, a United States senator from Maryland, uh, and he just got too annoyed. So you now have this sort of younger crop of Democrats within the the House caucus um, who are have been elevated or are being promised um, to be elevated into some leadership roles, um, but that generation gap in a weird way. Uh, protects her. Yeah, and I also think she's been she's I'm surprised to, hear, to say this, but she's been smart and being flexible and you know figuring out you know how how do you you know n- not push people into the corner uh, when when to make compromises, uh, willing to allow some of the freshmen to vote against her just as as cover. Um, by the way, you know speaking of the flow of of news today, I didn't mention before that uh, Deutsche Bank uh, is in trouble again. You saw this, that the German police raided uh, the Frankfurt headquarters of Deutsche Bank on Thursday as part of a money laundering uh, probe that uh, is reportedly related to the Panama Papers scandal. Um, as Tim O'Brien uh, mentions in uh, in Bloomberg, though, that uh, the Deutsche Bank's uh, troubles are Donald Trump's troubles. The president has a very longstanding business relationship and conflict of interest with this German banking giant. Again, I don't want to speculate, get ahead of it, but, you know, in terms of things that, that could pose threats going forward. Okay, so, John, I want to ask you about this. Donald Trump has proven to be, if nothing else, a master at changing the subject. You know, with everything that is coming down and let's let's just, you know, perhaps postulate that the G20 summit might not go necessarily that well. The ultimate changing of the subject would be to force a government shutdown over the issue that he feels most passionate about. What do you think he feels more passionate about, the wall or tariffs? I'm not sure. Let's say the wall for the for the moment. Forcing a a debate about uh, about the, the wall 
Now, there is a compromise that's out there that's pretty obvious that and that Democrats came very close to to making with Donald Trump, give him the five billion dollars for the wall. And then in return, you know, exact something like either action on legislation to protect Mueller or more likely uh, protection for DACA recipients. That seems very tempting. And the, and, the, and the moment is fleeting. This may be the last moment where you could strike a grand bargain like that. So what is your sense? How likely is that or, or, is, or is the environment just too toxic? On the question of a grand bargain, I don't think so. I mean, that was yeah. what, uh, you know, got this was the potential deal that could have happened back in, what, February of last year. And it got all tied up over chain migration. I believe that if you Google tied up over mm-hmm. chain migration, that's the headline of my article on this piece from <laughs> yeah. uh, mm-hmm. February. Um, you know, big picture, I just don't think a government shutdown is going to happen because uh, Schumer and Pelosi don't want one to happen and neither does uh, the GOP leadership in the House or the Senate. Uh, so, you know, it takes, uh, obviously it takes uh, multiple people to tango, um, you know, to get legislation passed here. But I think that, uh, you know, they all want to go home for Christmas. They're going to, you know, do a typical government funding bill that nobody likes and there will be bipartisan support for it and it'll pass and you know does does trump veto something um that has bipartisan support even though uh ryan and mccarthy and and pelosi and mcconnell and schumer all want it yeah that's possible he's the president he can do what he wants and uh and he win or lose he fights yeah he fights so you should never never count anything out yeah, I would. Um, I, I didn't. We, we didn't talk about this before uh, the, the show. I don't want. So I don't want to like drop it on you. But I, I'm. I'm really thinking, and we often bring this up about the news cycle and the stories that we don't pay enough attention to. Um, I think you know, for for example, you know, r- r- up until today, we haven't paid enough attention to what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. We haven't paid enough attention to uh, you know the American involvement in, in in Yemen, things like that. But the biggest story of the week, which I cannot shake, is this story out of the Miami Herald. This incredible investigation, you know, into the whole you know Jeffrey Epstein story and all of the women that were involved and the incredible. Um, misprision of justice that took place, the 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 the, the sweetheart deal that this uh, that this sick bastard got, uh, you know, from from the prosecutors, and the implications of that, given the fact that one of the characters involved in this is a is a member of the of of the president's uh, c- uh, cabinet, um, but th- this is one of those stories that it, it's it, it's it really is haunting. I mean, it really is an indication of the perversion of justice um, and, uh, you know, the, the way in which some of these guys get away with with murder. And, of course, it, it involves Bill Clinton, it involves, you know, uh, Alan Dershowitz, it involves uh, other people whose names we would all recognize. And even Donald Trump was uh, yes, had, Trump. Had, had, had a relationship of some kind with Epstein. Um, yeah, I think this is problematic, sort of practically speaking, uh, uh, for Alex Acosta too. Um, possibly succeed as attorney general, which had been talked about. I think that's pretty much that ship has sailed. Um, and, yeah. and and I think in a normal uh, environment, normal administration, this might even result in, 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 being, in him being pushed out to resign at labor. But uh, I think it, it, it goes to show you, and, and I think the, the lesson from all of these, whether it's the Me Too movement, what we've seen from Harvey, the Harvey Weinstein uh, uh, revelations, um, is just the way in which um, 
uh, people who have influence and power um, kind of protect each other. Uh, and uh, people deserve the presumption of innocence. And we can see in many instances uh, where people jump to conclusions. But um, the, the whole story from the Miami Herald, which is really, really well done, it's what's shocking to me is it's taken this long for us to even learn any of this stuff. And, um, it suggests that, um, we need, we, well, we, we could use some more, uh, some more journalism in this world in general. Yeah, I have a feeling we're going to be hearing a lot more about Alex Acosta. Okay, so John McCormick is a fellow uh, cheesehead. We, I don't think we've talked since, uh, since the election. And it occurs to me that, you know, that we've gone from uh, the era of cheesehead dominance to watching really, and I, I sort of feel this, the, the, the decapitation of, uh, of the conservative leadership in in Wisconsin now we've gone from having you know the speaker of the house of representatives the chief of staff uh, to the president of the united states uh, one of the most prominent uh, republican governors in the country and as of january beginning of january they're all gone i mean they're all gone you know reince reince priebus is off practicing law and making lots of money on the speaking tour paul ryan is uh, you know is headed off uh, you know back to janesville or wherever he is is going and uh, scott walker uh, of course, is going to be looking for you know with his his next chapter. And by the way, none of these guys are done. But it is a rather extraordinary moment to be a cheesehead to you know have experienced you know this this burst of of leadership and energy from here, and to, to think that that frankly all of them are gone now. Well, to give the sunny uh, view of it, please. Uh, <laughs> you know, Scott Walker, I think has looking for that the yeah. most to the most to be proud of, and that he won what I believe will be an enduring win by you know going to the mat on the, the union reforms, collective bargaining, the budget reforms, uh, winning the recall election, and holding the, the fact that Republicans held the state legislature. I'm, I'm not sure how much you know. Obviously, that matters to people in Wisconsin, also people who care about you know, fiscal conservatism generally. Uh, but I don't see Tony Evers reversing all that. And if anything, his presence in the governor's mansion will encourage uh, voters in Wisconsin, I believe, to continue to elect a uh, Republican legislature to be a check on the Democratic governor. Now, I, I could be wrong, but uh, no, what do right. you think? I mean, do you yeah. think do you think Walker's Walker's reforms is bigger forms are, are largely going to endure um, in a way that Paul Ryan for many various reasons uh, could never fulfill his uh, big, big, bold reform. I mean, there's the filibuster, there's a lack of Republican agreement, and you've got a president who doesn't care about entitlement reform, so they couldn't get through Obamacare reform, they're not going to get through Medicare right. reform, but in a way, uh, you know, Walker, Walker has a, a lot more of a uh, a lasting legacy uh, policy-wise in the state of Wisconsin. Oh, I, I think that's absolutely true. In fact, I, you know, really, I've been sort of scratching my head thinking, what is Tony Evers actually going to be able to accomplish as governor with uh, really strong uh, Republican majorities in both houses of the legislature? He's not going to be able to roll back Act 10. He's not going to be able to repeal those things. You know, there are always things you can do by executive order, but he's going to be very, very constrained uh, I, you know, I, 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 he might get through a gas tax increase or something, but you know, you, you make a good point that that those reforms are going to remain. There's not a lot of damage that he can that he can do. And plus, look, uh, these are all very young men. I mean, that's something we need to remind ourselves. Particularly, you know, Nancy Pelosi just got reelected. Uh, you know, she's 78 years old. We talked about uh, Diane Feinstein. These guys are. How old is uh, is Scott Walker? F- 51. Do you know how old Paul Ryan I, is? I, I don't know the specific like, age, but yeah, young. So they could have a. He's like, he's, he's they're like all they're all old to me, Charlie. Jeez, oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, it's it, it is. Uh, you're, you you are right. I do think that uh, the Walker's reforms are going to look better in 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 retrospect. Of course, a lot depends on how this Foxconn deal plays out. Uh, this whole question. Hey, by the way, John, um, since you uh, have been you wrote the definitive had the definitive coverage of the Kavanaugh hearings and everything, I just I have to mention the the stories out of the Supreme Court yesterday about the the oral arguments involving um, asset forfeiture. Um, are really optimistic that that the uh, that the court majority might be about to uh, up, apply the you know, excessive fine uh, rules of the federal you know federal uh, constitutional limits on on fines to the states and local governments, which would put a huge dent, if not eliminate, this whole civil asset forfeiture scam that's been going on. That would be strikes me as a huge victory for for common sense, limited government, and just fundamental justice. You know this whole notion of taking away guys, you know, entire cars because they had a you know an ounce of drugs in them or something. So that seems to be you know one of those Supreme Court decisions that will will make a significant difference. Yeah, and I I've, I didn't follow it closely, but it did seem like yeah. Justice Gorsuch uh, was really yep. sort of leading the charge uh, against uh, the, what was it, the state of Ohio. Um, you know, in, yeah. in this case, so it'll be interesting to see exactly how that breaks down. Yeah. So, are you, are you following the Michael Avenatti case closely? <laughs> I'm trying to <laughs> ignore ignore no, him. I I I, I admit that I'm, I'm I am fascinated by watching this story unravel. I mean, it's again, I I don't know what what the case is. The, this domestic violence case against him is going to turn out to be. There's not going to be felony charges. But then you have Stormy Daniels, you know, giving interviews publicly, basically saying, "Yeah, where did the money go?" And no, I didn't authorize that lawsuit. Um, you just get the sense that the that Michael Avenatti. You know, Rose had this this meteoric rise, and I've mentioned it many times on this podcast. But you know, what was it? Do you, do you think, John? Do you think it was his his decision to get involved in in the in the in the Kavanaugh he- hearings that was kind of the breaking point for him? Because sort of nothing has gone well for him since then. Yeah, that's a good point. That Democrats finally decided they were going to throw him under the bus after the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation. That was, as I reported in the Weekly Standard, you know, that was sort of a revisionist history where they were trying to cast off all the blame on him. When in fact, Democrats in the Senate were cheering him on right away. Really, any allegation, whether it was Julie Swetnick or allegations that came in the mail, completely anonymous, no return, no return address. They were, you know, asking Kavanaugh about this. You know, he was he was asked about some uh, other random anonymous uh, allegation that turned out to be from somebody who was mentally disturbed in Rhode Island, admitted oh, that they were yeah. wrong in the media. And a lot of some Democrats ran with these things or gave 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 oxygen to them, in particular the Avenatti Swetnick gang rape allegations. And, and yes, I do think that was really important where, you know, where, where it that had that not happened, uh, Kavanaugh's performance, which he, he needed to deliver just in, in terms of politics, an emotionally compelling response to a very emotionally compelling and uh, gripping testimony from Christine Blasey Ford. And when when it turned out that Swetnick's claims all fell apart in the week after that, it it provided opportunity for people to ask, well, really, I mean, in all these other Me Too cases, every other real predator who's been taken down has had a pattern of abuse, a pattern of assault. And it it, did this one thing happen long ago, or or or, or did it not? And ultimately enough, Republicans decided that you know there had to be some standard uh, of proof met. There had to be some presumption of innocence, and in, in that case, it wasn't. 
You know, I, I think one of the most telling things about this whole story, uh, going back to that controversy, is that, and you're absolutely right, there was always a pattern. There is always someone else. And in the case of Kavanaugh, as far as I can tell, I know you've covered this a lot more closely than I have, that, that after his confirmation, nothing. I mean, absolutely no one. No, It was like it just dropped. Yeah, and and if, 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 if in fact there was a pattern, and this of course was the fear that you'd confirm him, he'd be on the court, and then you'd find out something new. You know, instead, it seems like everything has evaporated. Well, and that's why I thought the effort to portray him as a frequent drinker in high school didn't actually necessarily help the the case. Yes, he admitted mm. to drinking excessively, and yes, it was established that he drank plenty of beer with his friends at times. But if that was the case, if this was typical behavior of him, did he really just? do this once and only once. I mean, it's, 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 you can't, there's no way you can disprove it, but there are, there are plenty of questions uh, if, if you, if you go back and read. Yeah. And, and I just want to add um, to tie this back to the Michael Avenatti stuff and the way that things seem to not be going his way. Um, it seems to me a similar uh, principle or a lack thereof is at work here, which is um, as soon as Michael Avenatti became um, less than useful, um, you know, he basically gets discarded. And all of the, the kind of shadiness about him, the way in which he operates, the insinuations he makes, um, uh, sort of w- once once he didn't have the protection, I think, the frequent appearances on cable news, um, and then in the Kavanaugh hearings, the sort of uh, uh, support, the tacit support from um, elected Democrats, um, all that stuff is kind of revealed like the emperor's uh, new clothes, and, and yeah. uh, it, it couldn't have happened soon enough. Well, you, you're, you're right, and I, I, I think people um – I don't don't need to uh, emphasize my um, Trump skepticism here, but you look back at the the willingness to embrace people like Michael Avenatti or Michael Wolf. Remember, we don't hear about him anymore, right? Or Omarosa because she had all these tapes. Think about how big, how how much attention, how much credibility was given to them until people realized, you know, you're full of it. You know, the and Michael Wolf just, I mean, you know, that book, Fire and Fury, just ate Washington, D.C. And you look back on it now, and does anybody even talk about it anymore? It's just embarrassing, yeah, you know, that, to, to do that sort of thing. And then, of course, Omarosa, who was on everywhere with all of these promises and delivered absolutely nothing. So you had, you know, three, I think, you know, scam artists, who really, you know, who got way too much oxygen from the mainstream media. And I think that, uh, that those of us that are Trump skeptics ought to realize how much that weakens, you know, legitimate critiques. Charlie, I think uh, I think you're wrong about this. They did deliver something. Just look at those those people's bank accounts, and I think you'll see that, that, that something uh-huh. was delivered. So just, just throwing that out there. Yeah, and I'm sure that uh, Michael Wolf is laughing all the way to the bank. Uh, it is hard to argue with that. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again. 